Hello, No Code Nation. I'm your host, Ayush, and welcome to my No Code Story, a podcast that will inspire and educate you with stories from real people in the world of no code. Today is a maker pod. You'll hear from a fellow no coder just like you with a laptop and a dream. I want to start by apologizing for the audio quality of this episode. I tried everything to make the background buzz go away, but I couldn't. If you know a rock star sound expert who can help me with this, hit me up on Twitter. But I'll say one thing, the lessons Carlos shares on this episode make it totally worthwhile, especially if you're starting or thinking about starting a new project. We deep dive into Bubble and the bootcamp experience, how intentional hindsight is a superpower, and when you should, or not, quit your venture. My guest today is Carlos, or No Code Carlos on Twitter. Carlos is a marketing specialist by day and aspiring SaaS founder by night. He works for a large food distributor and is building Remy AI, an AI-enabled marketing engine for restaurants. He shares his experience learning Bubble, invaluable if you're just starting your bubble journey, and among other things, tells us what he learned from every previous job he worked in. We even talk about the European soccer leagues, and Carlos reflects on his experiences and failures building his last startup. His story is sure to inspire you. Check it out. And I think my biggest takeaway is it takes a lot of hard work to start anything and a lot of focus. And unless you have a very good reason to quit, quit, otherwise you keep going. I like to think that as every position that I've held uh, taught me something about myself, it's kind of like a map to the future, to where, where is it guiding me? So you remember when Messi scored the 500 goal versus yeah. Real Madrid and he lifted up his shirt? Yeah. So with, with the help of a, of a graphic designer, we turned it into a graphical representation of it, like a painting. It was more like a painting with the splashes. Let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Carlos. Hi, I am Carlos, and this is my no-code story. Carlos, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I want to talk about your background, your story. But first of all, thank you so much for taking the time and being on the show today. Thank you, Yush, for having me. I'm excited and happy to be here. So, so Carlos, your background is in product marketing. and you were on a quest to find this product management role. Maybe talk about what you were hoping to find with that product management role and how you got to no code in, in the first place. Yeah. So I've always wanted, for as long as I remember, I've always wanted to develop something, to build something, right? Like a website, like software. I've always wanted to be involved in those type of teams and those type of companies. I thought the only way to join those teams was to be, you know, to be an engineer, be a software engineer. And that would be the only way to really join a team like that. So for a long time, I didn't really pay attention to it because I was like, well, I'm not going to uh, go back to school to do software engineering. I don't think even I don't even think I can do it. So I just kind of left that as that. And then through my through my job, I discovered that there's roles that you can call their, their product manager roles that deal specifically with product and the creation of the products. But they're not necessarily coding the actual product, but they're actually directing, you know, leveraging resources and testing and doing some other things. Use user research, UX experience, right? UI, all of it. So that's where it got me. I'm like, that's what I want to be, right? Like, that's the role I want to have. That's the role I want to grow in because I want to be involved in teams that are creating 
fun products, life-changing products, you think, products that enable people to do other things. So I set out, that was, this was like maybe three years ago, I set out to look for a role like that. So I read a bunch of books, took a couple of courses, and it started like volunteer to positions to, to roles in my a or to functions in my job that would allow me to grow experience in that. But it, it, it didn't happen, but I was still doing it. And so I was doing some product management activities, but I wasn't really a product manager or an associate product manager. I was just doing some of the things that they do, but I wasn't really breaking into the role officially. And that was until last year, around October, that through an Instagram ad, I discovered Bubble. And uh, I remember the ad saying like, hey, do you, have you always wanted to build something that you couldn't because you don't have the technical experience. So you, you're looking for a CTO. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. And I well, obviously I click learn more and then I discovered Bubble. And I realized, wow, I mean, there, just like we can create websites now with drag and drop functionality, like Shopify and Squarespace, I realized that Bubble provided the same, but for, you know, full-fledged apps uh, and web applications. And, and I was like, this is it. Like, this, is, this is my chance to start building something on my own. I got to take it. So I started digging into Bubble, what it is, doing some of the tutorials. And then through Bubble, I discovered the no-code movement. So and I realized that you know, behind Bubble, there's this whole movement of people, of makers that want to create, that want to do their own thing, but don't necessarily have the engineering, software engineering skills, but they can supplement that with no-code tools. And then I discovered Adalo and Thunkable and all of these other no-code no tools. And I was just so excited to see all of these other tools. Obviously, the hard part was, okay, was what, how do I choose? I have to choose one and just focus on one, become really good at it, and then maybe we'll see if there's another. So I started with Bubble, and I realized that within Bubble, there is this very kind community of builders that know a lot and that are so willing to share their knowledge for, for nothing. And, and I didn't find that in all the other no-code tools. I didn't find the, bubble, the, the community that Bubble has created within, with the Facebook groups, with Twitter, with the forums. There's nothing like it in the market, I think. And that's why I decided, you know what? Okay, well, I'm gonna go with Bubble. So it happened as me trying to break into a product management role and then realizing that, well, maybe I just build my own thing and you know by de facto i become an, a product manager because it's my own product that i'm building so that's the story <laughs> interesting you started with bubble so tell me a little bit about your background before uh you started looking for this product management role so when you were in product marketing were you good with data in general were you what you would call more of a technical oriented person no, I think I, I was more of a, a design-oriented person uh, for for the product marketing. I was always design and maybe maybe copy-oriented person. So how things should look like, how things should read, and so forth. So I was more oriented towards that. Uh, obviously, as I was doing the product management, I was also learning to be data-driven or data-oriented. So the reason I bring that up is because I have heard multiple times, at least, that in order to really get proficient with Bubble, you need to be able to navigate the learning curve that comes with Bubble. And some people find that reasonable based on other products that they've picked up in the past. And for others, that is just a, a turnoff. And after a few days, they kind of 
stop investing the time that's needed to really get good. I'm curious if you came across something like that and how did you overcome it if you did? Oh, yeah, not every day. And I still come across things. It, I'm still on the learning curve with Bubble. It's it's very steep. It's so, it, it's so easy to begin. It's so user-friendly to begin. But as you start digging in and as you start creating your own product and wanting, wanting your product to do things the way you think about it in your mind, it's it's a very different experience. So I wanted my I wanted the app to do this and this, right? And turns out that in order to do that, there were a bunch of different steps and workflows and backend workflows that needed to happen before I achieved that. So the learning curve for me, I'm still climbing it. And I guess the way I overcome it, I just I just try to think of of a small things or small steps that I got to take to overcome it because it's, it can be very overwhelming to think of all the things you still have to do with your product and then thinking, well, I'm never going to be able to do that. So what I do is, well, what's the next best thing that I can do or the next thing that I can learn? And I just focus on that on a very small chunk of the whole puzzle and I'll just take it one piece at a time, one step at a time, and I just keep learning more stuff, and I reach out to people, uh, and I look at the forums, look at Google, look at YouTube videos, and so forth. It's just it's just a steep learning curve, I think. People people may not be ready for how steep it is, thinking that, well, since it's no code, it's easier. I don't particularly agree with it. I think it's, I don't know if it's equally harder, because I never coded before, but it's, it's hard. It's not easy. No code doesn't mean easier to learn. It's just a different set of things that need to happen. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think you brought up a really valuable point, which is in order to continue keeping progress, you need to have a mindset that will let you think long term and make sure that you're able to invest the time on an ongoing basis because the outcome is probably much more powerful as well, right? So what you can build with Bubble is probably much more powerful than something you could build with like a card or, or a web flow, for example. And if that's the vision you have in your mind, then it's on you to invest the time that's needed. But let me talk about the second aspect as well that I wanted to bring up, which is you referenced something very specific. The reason you picked Bubble, and obviously jump in if I'm misspeaking here, but the reason you picked Bubble is because of the ecosystem that surrounded it in terms of tutorials that are available, experts that are willing to share, etc. Is that right? That's right, that's correct. And this is a key note to all the founders out there that are building something that allows other users to create. And I know there's a lot of talk about community and so on, so I think people are on the right track here in general. But even for some of the founders that are working on large-scale no-code products, being able to build not only the community of resources and help, but a very strong learning program, if you will. Because one thing I noticed Bubble does really well is they put out these expert hours that you can actually pay for and, and sign up. And I think it's really cool that they do that because once you pay for it, you're invested, right? So you're kind of then going to put the time in and you're gonna make the most of the expert's time that you have. And I think that's it's, it's an innovative model in itself I haven't seen too many other organizations do this. I know Webflow's university is, is pretty cool as well. And I just think it's it's a unique approach in general. But absolutely, if you're a founder, you have to be thinking about, is there a community around my offering? Are there resources around my offering? This could literally be a factor in someone making the switch to my product or my offering. 
it's, it's, it's precisely right. The reason I made, I made the switch or I selected mobile is because I could foresee that if I needed help, help was going to be there. And at the beginning, I tried a, a bunch of different tools. I tried Webflow, but, and, and they all have Facebook groups, uh, right? And you join them and, and they all have like Twitter handles and, and hashtags so you can reach out to people. But for some reason, the, the most responsive group of people are the, bubble, are the people in bubble. It also has a bunch of Udemy courses, and I and my, my preferred way of learning something is go to Udemy first, find if there's a course on it, and they have a couple of them in, in bubble, but none of the other tools have Udemy courses. So I go in there and then take, a, take, take that one course, and then I come back, and I get more familiar as I go through more courses of, of bubble. None of the other ones have other people creating courses for the platform. And then there's the bootcamp, which I, I took part of, and we can talk about more about the bootcamp if you want, which is, I think it's a great initiative, but I, I would make some changes if you ask me to the bubble bootcamp. So, so let's dig into that in just a moment. I wanna, again, spend a couple of seconds on what you just talked about. So literally, rather than the features, exclusively the features of the product, or what you can end up doing with the product, what might swing a person's decision to use a product could be the quality and the availability of resources that uh, they can use to learn the product and adopt it. And I think this concept is fairly innovative where Bubble is allowing trainers to essentially monetize and create their own content. Ensuring quality might be tricky there, but I think the monetization probably skews things one way or the other. But I'd be curious as to how they're ensuring the quality of all their trainers overall. Are they you know, certifying their trainers in some way or, or, or something like that? Because it could be an interesting model for even a smaller uh, company to start thinking about. So there are all these companies that are built on top of Airtable, that are built on top of Google Sheets, etc., where the assumption is that the learning curve is is fairly minimal, which is true. But still, there may be an opportunity to swing a larger portion of the of the population to use their product by enabling trainers in the manner that Bubble is doing. So tell us what you didn't like. So you, you, you said you had some feedback about the, the program there. So what, what would you improve? So for the bootcamp, I think the good thing about what the bootcamp does is that it, it, it kind of encouraged me to build uh, Remy AI. Because before the bootcamp, I was just doing, I was just building different things to kind of test out the system, try it out, things that, you know, do things that I could learn. But I always had this idea of Remy AI in the back of my head. Uh, when I discovered Bubble for the very first time back in October, I said to myself, this is it. This is how I'm finally going to be able to build Remy AI. And, but I didn't want to build it right away because I obviously I, I wanted to learn some stuff, test, you know, build some other things that I had in mind and see like, hey, if I can build this, uh, then it will put me a step farther to build what I really want to build. The value of the Bubble Bootcamp, as, as this is how they sell it, is build your MVP within eight weeks. I'm like, this is it. I'm, I want to build an MVP. And uh, I'm just going to wait until I sign up for the bubble bootcamp. And once I do, then I'll go ahead and build the MVP for uh, Remy AI. And the bootcamp allowed me, encouraged me to get started. But what I quickly find out is that if you come to bubble bootcamp not knowing anything at all, bubble, it's going to be very hard for you to learn, for you to get anything off of it. Because they, 
they start very rapidly. I think the I think the lessons it's a once a week for eight weeks, right? Two hour lesson. Okay. But on the two hour lesson, the first hour is spent doing kind of like reviewing other people's work, which I found it very hard to learn from those because when I was reviewing their work, they whatever they were trying to do didn't necessarily tie to what I was trying to do. So it was difficult for me to connect the thoughts between, okay, what am I learning here on this specific build that I'm not familiar with that someone else is. So I found that that hour, it was, at least for me, I was mostly like, well, great, but I'm really, I can't really get anything of it. And then the second hour is, okay, well, let's go through a couple of features, but you're only going for like an hour. And there's not much that you can learn off of the feature if they go, and I also thought they, they were going very fast. So we talked about APIs and it was just like, yeah, this is how you do an API, you connect it here, blah, 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 do this. And then, you know, if, if you're trying to self-pace, you're not going to learn it that way, I think. And yes, you do get the recordings, but then what's the point of like meeting once a week at a specific time if you're going to just end up re-watching the recording over and over and over? And, and they have the slides and they have the PowerPoint decks uh, walking you through the things, but I don't think they're necessarily helpful. So I am fortunate that when I started the Bubble Bootcamp, I had already done their, their tutorial, two Udemy courses, and then build things on my own because I was familiar with some of the things. But for someone that came in knowing nothing, I don't know if they could have learned that much. It's just, it, it, the lessons are going very fast, and you, you really, the first hour, I, I don't think you're learning anything because you really can't connect the thoughts of other people's uh, projects. Right. I think this advice is going to benefit a lot of people that are considering Bubble. So thank you for sharing that. Let's dig into Remy AI and, as a function, some of your past experience starting businesses. So you had a startup that, that failed. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I also very fun startup. I back in twenty seventeen I so I'm a huge European soccer fan. I don't know if you are but I'm a I'm a huge What's fan. All right. Yours you're you're asking if you know <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I used to follow La Liga quite a lot and obviously big fan of Messi and the mm -hmm. whole system, the, the tiki system and all of that. So followed Guardiola as well as he, you know, transitioned over to to where he's now. And it's I, I I like the team. I think there's it's gone downhill for a while. Oh yeah, for like sure. It's it's been a rough couple of uh, years in the past two two three years. Yeah, but you know it's what happens. I mean things things are cyclical. I think so. One day you're on top, one day you're on the bottom. And that's just part of what it is. And it's an unlimited game. There's no end, right? So and you're up, you're down, and but. Anyway, so back to the startup. I was, so I was a huge fan, but I, I didn't always want to wear a jersey because they were kind of hot. I don't know if you have, I don't know if you have jerseys, but they're kind of hot. They're not very comfortable. But I also, but I always wanted to also be repping the team. But I didn't want like just those simple cotton shirts that just say Barca or that say another team. I wanted something unique. I wanted something that, hey, what is what is something that I can be proud of wearing and showing and that it also represents the fandom that I have for whatever team. And that's why I created All Time Soccer back in the day in 2017. And I can send you images if you want, but I can. It was just this creative views on players and logos. 
for for classic soccer moments. So you remember when Messi scored the 500 goal versus yeah. Real Madrid and he lifted up his shirt? Yeah. So with, with the help of a, of a graphic designer, we turned it into a graphical representation of it, like a painting. It was more, more like a painting with the splashes. Right. And I, put, I stamped that on the shirt and I started selling those. And then I, I did all the moments like the Drogba penalty back in 2012, the Van Persie header goal in, in the World Cup 2014. So there were a bunch of moments that I captured of the image. And so a soccer fan would know the moment that happened, but they, were, they, won't, they won't see the image, they will just see a graphical representation or, or a design. And I stamped that onto t-shirts and I started selling those uh, on Etsy, on my own website, and I created an Instagram. And it was, a, it was a really fun thing to do. I learned a lot, especially about social media marketing and social media, I guess, community management. And about two years later, I started getting flat because for copyright issues. So I guess the appearance to the players, even the appearance to the players will flag you. So if it looks like the player, it'll flag you. If it looks like the emblem on the or the logo of the team, it'll flag you. So I started getting my products taken down from Etsy, and, and I was like, okay, well, this I'll, I'll try something else. And I started naming them something different. I started creating things that wouldn't portray players or emblems uh, until I think one one day I received a a love letter, and I call it love, quote unquote. Right. from the Premier League saying, hey, if you don't, um, if you don't stop, we're going to take action. So, <laughs> so when that happened, I, I freaked out because to be honest, I wasn't making money with the with the shirts. I, I very little money, really. And uh, it was just more like a hobby, something that I was enjoying doing because uh, I was in the conversation talking soccer all the time. So I, but I stopped because, you know, I wasn't going to risk uh, my family's future for for a hobby. It was too, too much of a risk. So I, I closed everything down. I closed the website. I closed the account. And I don't even think if you look for something now on Google, you'll be able to find anything. That just kind of just, I, I was removed from the face of the earth on when that happened. So it failed. I, I believe it could have been bigger. And I think it started a, a trend of soccer lifestyle clothes. Because back in the day, there were only three accounts that did what I did. That kind of like took soccer uh, fandom and portrayed it into a street style and convert it into a street style. So that there were back, three accounts back then. Now you look anywhere and there's a lot of people just trying to do the soccer street street life, right? And and, and there's a, a whole fashion movement now that if you're a soccer fan, you don't, you don't have to display with like a, sh- a shirt that says soccer. You can just there are different things now that can portray that lifestyle and that phantom that you have for soccer so it started something for sure it started a movement but i i got out of the game because i i didn't really think i could fight it and i also i was also i was also involved in this other company that i felt like had much more potential so i figured okay i'll just pick one and i'll just stick i'll stick to with the other one i'll say a couple of things it sounds really like you were well ahead of your time because fast forward four years and guess what's happening the NBA is selling digital replays essentially with NFTs, right? So they're monetizing creative content, creating unique uh, unique experiences, and then allowing people to 
basically purchase those unique experiences with NFTs. And it's, it's just a matter of time, I think, when most sports leagues will start doing this because there's some value there. And I think you hit on it where people that played the game or watched the game, they would know that moment, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. obviously seeing it on a shirt and, and other sort of merchandise is, is one aspect of it. But also having ownership of something unique, it, it really means something to a lot of people. So I see that space really benefiting from the whole NFTs, but it sounded like you're a little bit ahead of the curve there. I'm curious about one thing. Did you ever look at just allowing the the Premier League or or any other entity that contacted you to basically license this for you? I, I, I looked into it a little bit, but it was going to be way too expensive to get a license for a for something that I was making, you know, nine, nine, seven bucks a pop every time that I sold something. So like, it's too steep of a climb. And I'm not particularly interested in in going through all those hoops for something that it started more as more as a hobby. Well, it started as a hobby. It started as a business, but it became more like a hobby because I realized, well, I'm not going to leave all of this. What was your biggest takeaway from this experience? By starting a company and, and starting anything takes a lot of hard work, and it takes a number of years. And I think thinking about it now is I sometimes I wish I hadn't quit. Because now, now I'm seeing, you know, all these other soccer fashion brands and I'm seeing NFTs now, right? And I'm thinking, I mean, four years, if I had gone and stopped with it, I, I may be in a different place right now. But, but I didn't. And I think my biggest takeaway is it takes a lot of hard work to start anything and a lot of focus. And unless you have a very good reason to quit, quit otherwise you keep going. So um, let's riff on this a little bit. What specifically would you have changed from what you were doing? So let's assume you're in 2017 mm-hmm. and you're, you're going to make a change. You're not going to quit. You got this love letter from the Premier League. Maybe you write them one back. But what, what exactly are you changing? I think I would change the designs to not include any player representation or logo or emblem representation, but rather do a different takes. Soccer theme, but different takes. Like... You know, it doesn't have to be the player. It doesn't have to be the the emblem. It can just be how they're how they are known, right? So like the the Reds, right, for Liverpool. So I just use the Reds, or or how they're known. Things that are, or, or formations, right? I could use formation because formations are not copyrighted. Yeah. So I could use like how the formation is displayed. I could have used. I could have now looking at it. I could have gone done so many other things that didn't necessarily display a copyrighted asset. So I would have done that. I'm fascinated you said that. So you would have still stuck with T-shirts and other physical merch. Yeah, back in 2017. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, I, I was almost pretty sure that you were going to say I'm going to do something digital. And given especially the focus of your current business, which lets it's a good segue to that as well. Your current project is more focused on AI and, and social media marketing and so on. So I was almost thinking, okay, he's going to say something about going digital, but you surprised me with that one. And and I like the physical goods business as it per- pertains to sports. There are a couple of things going for it. There's seasonality. There's, like you said, the ebb and flow of a team, right? So sometimes they're hot, other times mm-hmm. they're not. But the company gets to benefit from positioning different aspects of the team or different teams, etc., And there's a pretty rabid fan base, which is always a good thing. And it's also pretty global with soccer, right? It's not like other sports uh, where it's restricted to a cer- certain region. So I think there's a lot going for it. Let's pivot a little bit to your current project. 
which is Remy AI. So just for, for the record, it's not Remy.ai, which is a completely different enterprise company. It's AIRemy.com, right? Yeah, AI-Remy.com. Great. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about it. How did the idea come up and how did you go from a physical merch selling company to an AI focused company that helps restaurants? Well, it's because I noticed a gap in the market. So I, my nine to five job, I work for a, one of the largest food distributors in the, in the country. And I worked for a number of years, I worked as a marketing consultant, meaning I would come in and help restaurants with their menu design, with their social media, with banners and business cards and so forth, kind of like designing those for them. Right. And I noticed that uh, a lot of these small restaurants that take advantage of the services that we offer, I noticed working with all these type of restaurants that none of them have a good digital presence. They have a Facebook, but they posted like once or twice years ago. The, the profile photos and even their logo is just like a picture of the restaurant from the outside. It's just, you know, it's all these things that need to be corrected. So I, I tried to start this program within, within the company to help them specifically in social media and tell them, hey, we did a review, we did an assessment of your social profiles. This is what we, this is what we find. This is what you got to do. You got to take, you know, these five next steps in order to make it a little better. But even after telling them everything that they needed to do and, and just making them very easy to like do these five things, I would go back a few weeks after and say, hey, so how's it going with your, with your social media project? Have you been able to do anything? Oh, you know, you know what? We've been busy. We just haven't had time. And I realized, and this scenario repeated about 93% of the time with all the restaurants that I work. So they don't have a social media presence. They don't have time to take care of it. They can't pay anyone to do it for them because restaurant margins, especially when you're starting out, are very low, you, you know, right? So this happened 90% of the time. And I realized that it's not about telling them what they need to do because they know what when it's to be, be done, right? It's about enabling them to, to just, with a click of a button, do these things. And that's how Remy AI happened. And I took inspiration, funny enough, I took inspiration from uh, Shopify. Because when I, ha when I had my e-commerce store selling soccer t-shirts, I had, I had set it up on Shopify. And Shopify had this feature called Kit. And Kit is a virtual digital system. I mean, it's an AI-powered robot that kind of tells you, one of the examples was like, hey, today's tax-free day. Do you want to send this promotion out? And they will text me that. They'll text me the, the image of my shirt with the promotion and then say, yeah, post it. And Kit, this this virtual digital assistant, will post that to, to my Facebook page. And all I had to do was receive a text message, review the copy, review the offer, and send that and send back, yes, post it. So because of this, I realized, well, re you know, restaurant owners need something like this as well. Some, some, someone's got to make it happen. And that's how Remy AI was born. So the, the end goal of Remy is, you know, the ambition of Remy is huge. But right now for the MVP, I'm focusing on, hey, you need copy for your social media post? Let Remy AI do it. You really will do a lot more. We'll post, we'll create uh, promotions and so forth. So that's how Remy was born. Well, out of this necessity, out of this gap of restaurant owners not being able to post things on on their social media by on their own this is so interesting i mean the reason you got turned on to the restaurant business 
is because your day job is in the food distribution space mm-hmm. and that exposed you to a certain industry. And it's so critical for us to really be aware of the industries with which we interact on a day-to-day basis and try to constantly find you know, gaps that could be addressed, areas where you know, value could be added and so on. I want to talk about the strategy that you're looking at going forward. So what's the plan? Is it to raise money once you get to an MVP or is it to bootstrap and build something and grow it out organically? So I think the plan, and I debate this with myself daily, I, I change minds daily, but I think I I would, I want to finish the MVP and, you know, get a couple of customers in, paying customers in and, and prove that the solution, validate the solution, right? I've validated it. On, on interviews because I've done uh, user experience research before and I validated that there I validated that there's a problem and I validated somewhat that the solution will help but I need to fully validate it by saying would you pay money for the solution right once I get to that point my next plan is raise money because I would want to you know build a team that would help me you know, build the full-fledged version of what AI Remy can be. I don't, because I know I won't be out, I won't be able to do it by myself, or at least not quickly enough. I mean, I may be able to do it by myself, but it may take me years. And especially if I'm just doing it on my spare time. When do you hit that scale in terms of having to bring someone on board to scale up the application and add more feature functionality to compete? Is it immediately after you build the MVP? Is it maybe once you have like, I don't know, 100 customers, 1,000 customers, when is it? Yeah, no, I think if, if I'm able to get, you know, around, if I'm able to get some around, you know, 20, 30 paying customers that use the solution and validate it, then I'll, I'll be in a comfortable place to say, okay, now let's look out to raise money because now this is not just what AI Remy is going to be doing. There's much more things that they can be done. We need to build those, and we know customers will pay money for it. And we know there's, you know, we know we're solving a problem because third-paying customers show that they use it to solve their problems. So now imagine if we were able to facilitate even more of the restaurant marketing through AI Remy, and that's uh, I think at that point I'll go out and seek out for to raise money. Are you are you following Paul Yakubian on Twitter? Absolutely, yeah. His yeah. story is pretty inspiring. I mean, he's using OpenAI as well to develop you know, functionality where you can start to generate copy. And it's just phenomenal to see how he's growing his team. But I would say you know, that's, that's an inspiration for what you can start to do in the AI space with maybe, maybe not with no-code tech, but in the no-code slash AI space, right? So on the intersection yeah. of no-code and AI. And I'm just curious, are you planning to build in public as well? I'm planning to build a public, but right now there's really not much I can. The, the other things that I can share is when I when I fail, when when like there was a moment where I launched and then I had to take it back because OpenAI. I, re, I realized that OpenAI would need to have approval before I launch, so I so I rolled it back and say, hey, you know, and then I shared that with with my audience saying, I know I launched, but I I didn't realize this and this, so I have to roll it back. So yes, I'm, I'm planning to build them public as well uh, because I think it's interesting. I really like the whole concept of building in public because it's so vulnerable. And I like the idea of making myself vulnerable because it will make me stronger, which is it's a little, it's, a, it's almost like a paradox because by making yourself 
you're vulnerable, you're making yourself stronger. You know, it's almost ironic, but I think th that's the way I see it. The less I care about how people see me, the more, the stronger I become. There are definitely personality traits that lend themselves well or better to building in public. And from the short conversations that we've had, I feel like your lessons are so tangible and so actionable for founders that I could see a lot of people benefiting from just hearing this in the flow of when you're executing on your business. And even for someone that's thinking about an idea that's coming up, it's sure to add a lot of value. But let's talk about failures for a second. And you talked about you know the startup that failed, but you also in the past have said that you've learned a specific lesson from every job that you've taken. What does that mean? I was thinking about this the other day, and I, I like to think that as every position that I've held, uh, every full-time position that I've held, taught me something about myself. And, and it's kind of like this path, what, looking back, that it's helping me build towards something. I don't know what that something is, but it, it's kind of like if I trace back all these roles that I have and the things that I've learned, it's kind of like a map to the future, to where, where is it guiding me? So to put you an example, when... I was just out of high school. My thing that I wanted to do in college was movies and film, and I wanted to do work in entertainment, right? Fast forward a few years, I, I, didn't, I didn't start college right away. I started college like maybe a year or two years after. But before I started, I started working with my dad. He, he owns an advertising company, and we, uh, we basically had a, he had a client that had to sell. Do you remember the prepaid phone cards? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he had a he had a client that had a, had a new prepaid phone card kind of thing, and we had to sell it in stores to people that were walking into the stores. So my very first like real job would be going to the store and talk to people about this product and sell it. And I did that, and I did that very successfully. And that shifted my mind to, towards like, well, you know, I really like business and I like sales and I like marketing. I think I want to do this for in school instead. So that's that's my first job. Kind of like transition me like, hey, you want to do sales marketing? You can do sales marketing because you're good at it. So that was the first thing. And then right out of college, almost a little bit of, out of college, I joined a company that traded salvage and uh, liquidating assets. So a company goes bankrupt and they sell all the computers. Mm -hmm. This is a platform that will like find you a buyer, right? So I started trading those assets and, and I discovered and I discovered patience because I was a trader, I was kind of like a broker. I learned the importance of persistence and the importance of just keep on trying and keep on trying and keep on trying. Then I moved on, on to my second job right out of college. And it was uh, for a medical equipment company and it was a hard job. One of the hardest jobs I've done because the, I had a, a a very strict boss and we worked the longest hours from like five four in the morning up to nine p.m so it taught me the importance of hard work and hustling and then after that i think something switched in me that i'm now more likely to hustle more likely to like work long hours and be okay with that so that experience taught me a lot of the you know just grind and hustle and work hard and work long hours. I know we're, we're in a society that doesn't look up to that, but I learned that from that role. And then moving on, all these all the other roles have taught me, you know, that work can also be fun, the importance of culture uh, and, and team and, and making a team feel like work can be fun. 
And lastly, my last job, I think, is teaching me the, to value my own work for how I consider it, not how, how I order things. Because one of the things that I don't, don't do good is that I, I often don't value my own work as much as, as much as I would want to. I, would, I need that external approval that says you're doing a great job or you're not doing a great job. But I, I don't particularly always tell myself, that was a great job you did. So I think right now this job is teaching me that I need to be aware of that I do a good job. I need to be proud of it. It's one of the key lessons that I'm trying to get out of this job, I think. It's such a valuable exercise. I would almost recommend anyone that's listening to this show to just take five minutes. I think you'll know it, right? The moment you start thinking about it, you know you can start to zero in on the key lesson. But spend five minutes, think about all the roles that you've had in your life. It, it, and these, these could be, you know, if you're a freelancer, think about the projects that you've worked on, the clients you've worked with. Uh, if you've worked nine to five jobs or, or worked at a corporation or something like that, think about the various roles you've had and try to distill one specific takeaway from each role that you, you've embarked on. It's just so, so nice to see the progression there. It all started with identifying where you wanted to focus, that focus on sales and marketing. And mm-hmm. then it came all the way to now identifying the value that you need to place on your own ideas and being able to project. I think there's something to be said that a lot of successful founders get intuitively, but a lot of the rest of us need to kind of work towards is projecting ourselves out there and making our vision a reality because that's ultimately what it is. It, it really comes down to how well do you articulate, build a culture, all, all the stuff that you said, but it's really great to see the progression from, from where you started to where you're at. And I, I just think it's such a valuable thing that people don't do enough. Thanks for sharing that. And let's talk about anything else in terms of takeaways. So is there a single takeaway that you would have for people that are new to the no-code space? Well, that, that'd be the first, the first takeaway. Start, start now because the, the worst time to start is tomorrow. So start now, but also know very well that well, today may feel exciting because you're starting, because it's something new, because it's, you know, your brain is firing and all cylinders about the possibilities. Know that it's going to probably going to slow down and the excitement will wear off. It may be harder to come in in the morning or whenever you work on your projects to, to work on those. But know that that will happen and know that when that happens, you have to try hard push yourself to work through these things because it is worth it and uh, uh, what you're learning is not also going to be good for the product that you you're going to build but it's going to put you in a much farther place from anybody else that when no code goes mainstream because i don't think it has but when no code goes mainstream and companies big companies start using it to build their mvps you're going to be in a position to say i know this i'm this experience but but know that the excitement wears off and you have to just put in your mind that this will happen and when that happens you will come come in and do the work step by step you know piece by piece and and you will see and and see it through Um, really valuable insight thank you for sharing that and it kind of also maybe maybe i'm seeing it this way but it it sounds like it distills all of the learnings that you had from all of your past experiences all the way from you know value to hard work and grit and so on 
And I've noticed this with a lot of successful people that I've worked with in the past where when things go wrong, they almost go into a completely different zone, right? So it's not that, you know, you beat yourself down even more and, and maybe take a step back, take your, uh, take your pedal off the gas. I've seen successful people actually go into a completely different, basically beast mode, right? Where they're laser focused on the problem to solve. And they know based on their past experience that this is going to end successfully. And just having that knowledge that there is no other way, this is going to be successful, really helps you, helps you overcome all of the difficulties that, that you start to face, which it's part and parcel of a, a founder's life. I, I didn't come into this thinking that we would discuss so many valuable life lessons, but we did, and I'm really glad for that. I want to thank you so much, Carlos, for taking the time to speak with me today and to speak with our audience. Why don't you go ahead and give our audience a handoff to where they can learn more about you, if they have any questions as they're thinking about their projects, where they can reach you. Thank you, Ayush, for having me. I had a, good, a really good time uh, chatting with you, and I didn't really, also didn't think I was going to be sharing this much of what I think of my life lessons are, but I'm, I'm happy I did because uh, things are that go in my head, and I'm glad I'm able to share them with you and with your audience, and I hope, hope someone finds it very helpful. If someone wants to chat with me and, or, or follow me, they can do so on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at NoCodeCarlos. Again, that's Twitter uh, handle at no code Carlos and you'll see uh, my progress on what I do with Remy there and uh, you'll see when I launch uh, AI Remy again when I relaunch AI Remy again you'll see it there as well thank you Carlos all right that was the show thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed it and got a ton out of it if you did there are two things you need to do Number one, make sure you subscribe to the show to get notified when a new no-code story drops. And number two, I want to ask you a favor. Who's the one person you know who would absolutely benefit from hearing this story? Text them right now and send them to mynocodestory.com and reference this episode. Maybe they're an entrepreneur. Maybe they can use this episode to level up at their job. Or maybe they're just someone who loves creating new things. Do it. Subscribe and then send them the text. Make a difference. Thanks again and I'll see you on the next one.